Kelowna has really uh, coming into its own now. You know, when I was growing up here in high school, the first thing everybody wanted to do was get out. And, um, you know, yes, it was beautiful, but there was not much going on. There were no jobs for you when you left high school. There wasn't much post-secondary. So everybody left. Welcome to Kelowna Talks, where we explore the why behind the decisions that shape your city. Together, we open the curtain and dig deep into current issues, plans, and policies that come out of City Hall. Thanks for joining us as we talk about Kelowna and the topics that matter to you. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Evans, Partnership Director at the City of Kelowna and host of your Kelowna Talks podcast. I acknowledge that our community is located on the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Silks, Okanagan people. So, two words are appearing a lot in the media lately. Housing crisis. dun da da dun We've seen housing prices escalate significantly in the region over the past couple of years. We've seen a shift in where people want to live, with people moving from big cities to smaller cities and more rural areas. It's obviously complicated. There are a lot of factors at play. A recent community trends report to council was called Housing Unaffordability, Crisis or Crossroads, and it looked at the steep rise in real estate prices and how this affects housing affordability for Kelowna residents and how the city can help through policy. Today, we're chatting with James Moore, our long-range policy planning manager, to talk about housing and specifically infill housing and what it, that is to us. Welcome, James. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's nice to sit uh, across, the, across the floor from you. Pleasure to have a conversation with you today. So uh, tell us a little about yourself, James. Uh, we like to start these things off on a little more informal basis and just get to know who you are. And uh, when you're not thinking of policies, what do you do f- for fun? Um, that's actually, it turns out that's all I do. I actually just sit in a large library <laughs> surrounded by scrolls and books and think only about policy. Uh, no, I would say, you know, I, um, I always think uh, what... You, do I uh, what do I do when I'm not at work and it's I feel like I'm a boring guy but in in the pandemic days I'm probably more like the normal person I I, I binge Netflix and uh, uh, and try to get try to get as, as much exercise as I can and play with my uh, my daughter and um, and uh, my wife and I are also uh, big wine lovers so Ooh, nice. uh, and we were wine lovers before the pandemic <laughs> so um, I'm gonna claim that you've deepened that love over we've the pandemic de- we've 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 become more uh, connected to our love of wine in the in the uh, in the, during the course of the pandemic but um, yeah so we're uh, we're busy young family doing uh, having lots of fun good thanks um, I guess the other fact that I'd like to share is that from my understanding you grew up in Kelowna yeah, that's right. My, both my wife and I did. My wife actually has a uh, uh, third generation in Kelowna. Oh wow, interesting. And um, uh, but yeah, we both we both grew up here, and it's certainly a different city than than when we uh, when when we were growing up. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to segue into. Uh, it's uh, obviously you've seen a lot of changes in your time in Kelowna, and it's one thing to grow up as a you know as a as a young boy and then a man and then go away to university. I assume you went away to university for for your degrees and to come back and then work as a long range policy planner for the city. What, uh, what do you say about that? What, what have you noticed though? What's your, what's, what's the biggest, uh, I guess, takeaway for you as a, as a planner growing up in Kelowna? Yeah, it's just, uh, I think Kelowna has really, uh, coming into its own now. You know, when I was growing up here in high school, the first thing everybody wanted to do was get out. 
and um you know yes it was beautiful but there was not much going on there were no jobs for you when you left high school there wasn't much post-secondary um and so everybody left and some of us are coming back now uh but now that you know that choice isn't the same choice being made by a lot of young people here anymore there's lots more opportunity both on the educational front and also on the job front uh, so it's it's just a, and it's also get that critical mass of people now where there's enough interesting stuff going on, enough things to do, that uh, it's become a really, I think, a community that's hitting hitting its own stride now. Uh, so it's just fascinating to getting a chance to, to, to be in my position and so fortunate to be in my position while the city is at that point in its evolution. Yeah, and one thing I always like to talk about is the, the advent of the UBC Okanagan campus. And, uh, you know, I, I was here when, when it started and just saying to people, just hold on because you have no idea what impact uh, a university campus will have on our community. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, students bring so much life to a, to a city. And, you know, I can't wait to see what the downtown campus does to downtown uh, in, in the next few years. And, you know, things like the International Airport and so on have had such a big effect on, on Kelowna over time. Um, and it's just been a pleasure to, to be part of the, that process as it's, as it's growing. Okay, let's get back over to the housing crisis. It's such a serious topic for us today. It, it permeates the conversation around our dinner table in my friend group at the office. Um, you know, we're not the fastest growing city in Canada. We're probably one of the top, but we're not necessarily the fastest. And in, in a broad sense, how, how does this impact housing and housing prices i know that's a big hairy question but how does it how did we get here uh i think if i if i had a concise answer for that i think i would i would be eligible for some some serious awards um you know i i I can certainly echo your sentiment sentiment like you know i think now more than ever i i'm observing housing affordability as as the topic of conversation and it's not you know when I, when I was growing up here, that just wasn't the case. That's not something that people were really worried about was whether they would be, their kids would be able to come back to live here, uh, whether they could afford to live here. That wasn't really a big question. Uh, it was more about if you could find a job here. And, and uh, now it's water cooler talk. It's everywhere. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, it's the number one point of conversation in, in Kelowna is, is real estate prices. Um, you know, the certainly Kelowna's fast growing, but there's no way I think uh, people are, are going to be scratching their heads about what's really behind uh, price increases like we've seen over the past year, over the pandemic, 30% in a year. I think we're talking really about kinds of price escalation that are, have never before been seen in Canada. And and uh, I don't know, I think we'll be we'll be spending a lot of years dissecting all the various factors behind it. You know, housing housing markets are complex at the best of times. Uh, in a time like this, they're extra complicated. Certainly, Kelowna is fast growing, and uh, I think when you get down to it, it's a it's a rapidly growing place. A lot of people want to live in, uh, and it's getting more and more unaffordable. And that's having real that's going to have real effects for people. You know, it's not an academic discussion anymore. It's it's getting down to having meaningful impacts on people and people's livelihoods and their families. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think the, the word that I'll hang on that you said is complex. And it, it, it really is. Uh, there are so many different variables at play. And uh, personally, I've done 
lots of reading and trying to dig deep and look at the conversation that's happening in both academic and, and industry. And it's, it's just, it's a head scratcher. And I think that's what's happening in, in the, in the industry, in the marketplaces, you know, there's, there's demand and people are building homes and demand comes price escalation. It's, it's sort of your normal economic, uh, cycle, but it's, it's also what it's creating in its wake. That's, concerning and problematic i think you know when when you can say you know the idea that uh that a a benchmark price for a house in Kelowna would be over a million seemed like a fantasy some kind of some kind of far-flung idea that would maybe happen in vancouver at some point but never in Kelowna. you know not only have we gotten there uh at all we've gotten there much faster than we thought we would and I think it's just highlights to me when, when something like the benchmark price for a detached home crosses a million, it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a, a almost a, a, a watermark. It just highlights that, that, uh, you know, we've got a real, uh, deep affordability problem here where, you know, if you're talking about it costing over a million dollars for, for a benchmark detached home, well, that, that puts it out of reach for something like 90% of Kelowna residents. Wow. That's a number. That's for sure. 90%. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's made even more complicated when you start thinking about, okay, well, that's the kind of form of housing that, that makes up most of our neighborhoods. And, uh, not only does it make up most of our neighborhoods today, but it's really all that's allowed in most of our neighborhoods. And so we're saying in some ways, what we're realizing as, as a result of the, the kind of real estate, uh, market today and the housing crisis that we're in today that we've we've got neighborhoods that at some point in the not too distant future are only going to be accessible to you know 10% or fewer of residents so they're really going to be f- for only the wealthy and that poses kind of an existential problem for us about what how do we how do we accommodate our future nurses and our our future teachers and our future service sector workers and our our future uh, tradespeople in housing that is affordable for average people. Well, and that segues into infill housing, which is my next topic I wanted to talk to you about. And uh, as you're aware, we're projected to grow by 40,000 people in the next 20 years. And we're obviously hedged in with a you know, beautiful landscape of mountains and lake. And then we have the agricultural land reserve. So it's a tough thing. We have to put we have to put people somewhere. So now we're talking about density, and uh, one of the things that you're in charge of at City Hall is uh, infill and the infill challenge. So when I use the word infill, not everybody understands what that means. So just just to start us off, can you explain in simple terms what infill is? Well, you know, I'm 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 trying not to talk about infill because I just like for this very reason because I think it's it's a term that doesn't necessarily immediately resonate with you. I try and talk about, um, you know, housing choices or housing options, and I think when we look at our our neighborhoods, we often don't have much housing choice. We look at many of us grew up in neighborhoods that really just had detached homes in them as, as our one option. Uh, but there's a whole menu of options of uh, of of housing forms and homes that can exist in in those kinds of neighborhoods, whether it's carriage houses or suites or uh, duplexes or uh, house plexes or um, uh, small apartment buildings; these these kinds of of homes that can fit into 
our existing neighborhoods, but that really are affordable and attainable to a much broader cross-section of the city than a simple detached house. So we're talking back to economics again, I guess, when we're talking about taking um, you know, a, a simple single-family lot and then adding more people on it through the housing form that you're adding to that particular property. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, and I think it, it, it does a couple of things. It's, it, it expands the, the kinds of housing options that exist in the neighborhood, not just for an afford, from an affordability perspective. So that's one, that's one big advantage. You know, it's, it's a, a person, more people can access uh, uh, a townhouse than can access a detached house. More people can access a, a, a secondary suite than can access a, a detached house. So that's one part of it. But there's also the piece about, you know, if you're a homeowner and you um, and you're concerned about whether you can accommodate where your where your kids might live, it might give you the chance to to change your uh, the configuration of homes on your lot so that maybe there's a smaller place that you can think about aging in place in, and maybe you can provide a home for uh, for one of your kids or more than one of your kids. Uh, maybe it's a rental for when they're in college. Maybe it's a place for them to have their starter home, and maybe it's their permanent home, but. We, it starts to offer, it starts to mean that our neighborhoods can offer housing that meets our needs at different points in our lives, not just when we have a big family. Okay, and you've been thinking about this for a number of years, and you and your department uh, started something called the Infill Challenge. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that, what it was, and uh, now that it's been in place for a while, how that turned out compared to your vision and how's that uh, looking on the ground james um so we yeah we did start the infill challenge and we we're actually just wrapping up the second round of that the infill challenge 2.0 and both of them really asked um the put put a challenge out to the design community whether that's designers or architects or or home builders to uh bring forward their best ideas for how you could accommodate new uh, forms of housing or new homes in neighborhoods in a way that would uh, that would be economically feasible, but that would also respect those neighborhoods. And uh, the first infill challenge identified a, a couple of design options, and and you know we thought it, it was an interesting process, and and you know one of the one of the takeaways for me was that um, we host a lot of conversations in that process with residents and and builders and designers and and when you come from the development process like I did you're used to a very kind of uh, expecting um, a lot of conflict between developers and, and, and neighborhoods it's kind of a, a narrative that you're very used to seeing and I didn't see that in this process I saw a lot of actual, actually a lot of agreement and a lot of consensus and uh, that that stuck with me that, that that I don't think we're quite as far apart as people think we are when it comes to infill um, but anyway, we thought we thought it was a, a an interesting process, and uh, that might find some uptake, but probably not a lot. It would be a, it would be a, an interesting idea that we could explore and use as a pilot. And um, we took those winners and we we gave them some incentives, and said, hey, let's see if we can make this easy to deliver these these windy designs in our neighborhoods. And lo and behold, um, it took off, and. Um, I think looking around, it's probably one of the most successful infill programs in the country. Um, if you think about it in terms of how many have been delivered uh, and how many homes have been delivered to market, 
Uh, and that means on the ground we're seeing in a lot of central neighborhoods, we're seeing four unit projects where there used to be one unit or maybe two units. And those four units might be in all attached. They might be uh, four townhomes. They might be two detached homes and two condo units behind or um, any combination of those. So uh, you're not talking about a major, huge transformation neighbor. This is not a tower next to a detached house or a giant apartment building. These are small homes that fit uh, fit on a on a standard lot, and they're they're adding uh, diversity to uh, and housing options to to neighborhoods that maybe haven't seen investment in quite a long time. But there's certainly been impact. I mean, it, it's just driving around the city now and going into the, the older neighborhoods. You there there's all of these units popping up in primarily the old-fashioned single-family neighborhoods. So that probably hasn't been easy um, for a lot of people in the neighborhoods who are used to just having the single-family homes. Uh, and I know it's it's needed. What, what do you say to people who are living in those neighborhoods that have been there for decades and are seeing their neighborhoods transforming to have more people, so more people brings more traffic, more noise, more action. How do, how do you just, I guess, win them over is the only phrase I can think of to the value of that. And what, how do you explain to them what's happening in, in their neighborhood and, and why we need to do that as a city? Um, you know, I, I will say right off the bat that it has been less contentious than almost any other similar program in the country. Usually when you, when you hear about programs like this, you, you, they're in the news because they're, they're in court or they're, you know, they're massive protests or something like that. Um, you know, that hasn't been the case here. That's not to say that there aren't people who are concerned and who've expressed those concerns uh, to me and to, and to council and others. And, um, I think one of the ways, and, and, and some of those concerns are things we have to work on. Like there's no way that we were going to, do that program and have it be perfect right off the bat. It is a learning process. And, you know, I like to think about infill as, as a learning process. It's something you're going to have to, it's not a one and done thing. You're going to have to stay committed to it and to keep it up to date and to keep it relevant and to keep it uh, listening to the community and doing better and doing better and doing better all the time. Uh, It's a commitment to a process, not a one time outcome. But I think one of the ways that, that is starting to, to, to bear fruit in terms of talking to people about infill is about, um, their own families. You know, when you have to pull people a little bit out of their own context to say, you know, we all have, we all love our neighborhoods. We all love our neighborhoods the way they are today. Maybe we've been there for a long time and we love that tree on the corner. We love, we're used to the neighborhood exactly the way it is. And, um, and so talking about, change in that neighborhood, no matter what form that change makes or takes, is a, is a, tip, a difficult thing to have. And I think you have to appreciate that. You have to appreciate their, the people how value their neighborhoods. They value the relationships. They value the places. And that that's something you want to you respect and, and acknowledge. Uh, but it helps to, to take people a little bit out of that and say, okay, where, uh, you know, if you have children, if you have grandchildren, if you have nieces and nephews, where are they going to live when it's their turn to, to, oh, exactly. to get a piece yeah. of the pie in Kelowna? Um, we all want our 
children, grandchildren, nieces and nephews or relatives to be able to enjoy our neighborhoods the same way we did. But when, when getting in that neighborhood is going to take you over a million bucks, there aren't that many of them are going to be able to do that the way our neighborhoods are today. So it helps to start talking to people about, okay, well, how, how, where are we, where are our children going to live? And, and how can we make it so that our children and, and grandchildren can access the neighborhoods that we love uh, in a way that they can afford? And I, so I think that's, that's a, a fruitful conversation. I'm not going to say that everybody comes out of those conversations happy or fully, fully satisfied, but I think it's a, it's a way to start having people step away from their, uh, from their feelings about the neighborhood today and think a bit more about um, how we find room for people uh, in the future. And I think also talking about that, you know, um, how do you, how, are there, how, how do you plan on growing and aging in place in, in this, in this space? You know, when you're, do you think you're going to want to be able to live in your home when you're 80 and maybe you have a mobility challenge? Should you be able to live in your home when you're 80 and you have a mobility challenge? Should you be able to build something on your property that you can move into that is more, uh, that meets your needs at that point in your life? Um, do, should you be able to build a place for your kids to come live while they, while they come and get established in Kelowna? And I think those kinds of questions are questions that prompt meaningful discussion rather than where are people going to park their cars and, um, you know, why is anything having to change? Like it, you gotta, you gotta step away from those basic conversations and get people thinking about. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that, and the, you know, the price change, I was gonna say ceiling, it's definitely not a ceiling. It's, it's just the, it's the foundation now, the, the million dollar average. And that has to, that, that has um, spurred the conversation on because there are people I well, I me, you know, I have three, quote unquote kids who are now in their twenties and they'd love to come to Kelowna and we start looking around and we try to figure out, okay, how does that look? What, what would that be like? Where could you live? So those are, those are conversations that are having happening. So generationally, you're right. We want people to be able to live in our city and how are we going to make that happen? I think there's, there's also, you know, a, a, you know, a, um, there's a narrative that, that, ex- that exists that neighborhoods, uh, don't have to change or that neighborhoods can somehow freeze themselves in time. And I think that that's just, you, you have to start to get ourselves out, out of that idea because it's not, it's not the truth. It's not what happens. So really, I think when you look at, when you look at infill, you have to look at a couple of broad futures for a neighborhood. And one is roughly the status quo where we predominantly allow mostly detached homes in most of our neighborhoods. And what's going to happen in those neighborhoods over time uh, is that people will come in and they'll buy those million-dollar homes and they'll knock them down and they'll build, because they can't build anything else, they'll build a $3 million home. They'll build a brand new, larger, more expensive home. And those neighborhoods will become even more exclusive. Uh, And the alternative is, okay, well, let's think about ways we can Add additional units to those neighborhoods, get some benefits of that of those additional units. Maybe that's uh, better transit access. Maybe that's some local services. All those kinds of things, but also provide housing that isn't that three million dollar new house. It's it's a mid market townhouse, or uh, something along those lines that somebody that a much broader cross section of the community could actually access. And 
so, you know, I think it's not about whether change is going to occur. That's going to happen. Your, our neighborhoods are going to change. The question is, what shape does that change take? And what benefits are there for our future generations? Perfect segue to my next question that came to mind. Uh, I'm a designer by training, so what shape does it take? So your words, uh, how does that play out in the design aesthetics for this infill challenge? So this infill challenge 2.0, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the things you're looking at inside of that challenge in terms of form, character, streetscape, all the things we like to talk about as designers that uh, create a great project and in, and really help these projects to blend seamlessly with, with the neighborhood. Um, sure. And I, I think, um, you know, first off, you have to situate uh, the kind of change in, uh, that we're talking about in scale of building in context and um, you know the the kind of infill that the infill design challenge and infill, infill challenge 2.0 are, are talking about is is very low on the on the scale of new development you know we're not talking about uh, a design challenge to bring in towers into right. a neighborhood or we're not talking about design challenge to bring in you know eight-story apartment buildings into into neighborhoods we're talking about a design challenge to, to that's predominantly still in the kind of two two and a half story range of of buildings so we've we've scaled the the submissions so that they're uh, they're within a very reasonable range of what can be built in those neighborhoods today. So they're not gonna you know they're they're roughly similar to what in scale can be built in there under their existing regulations today. We also really want to make sure that they push a uh, they're very friendly to the street. So we talk about uh, making sure that they don't turn their backs on the street. They engage with the street well. Um, they have uh, room for shade trees and landscaping and outdoor space that they consider privacy, not just for future residents there on the site, but also for adjacent, adjacent neighbors. Um, so there's lots of things that we do to think about the design element, about how it fits into the neighborhood. There's also lots of other design things that we think about in the design challenge that aren't related to fit, but that are equally important about how do we manage stormwater in a way that is sustainable so that we're not... Uh, creating major stormwater problems downstream? How do we think about energy efficient design that creates buildings that are sustainable for another generation or two that don't end up being a burden? So there's lots of elements to this uh, that are uh, that are being considered and, and I know I wouldn't want to, I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't say that affordability was a, a question that we we're proposing in there as well. How can, how can infill uh, not just be delivered at market rates, but how can it be delivered in a way that maybe is more connected to uh, to affordable incomes and, and average incomes in the city? Well, that's a good point because we can design ourselves out of the <clears throat> market in terms of pricing. If we, right. if we over-regulate it and over-specify uh, it, it just gets more expensive. Yeah, so uh, the, all those kinds of, the, of things are, are being considered. And, and, you know, we've got a great panel of judges uh, with experience from Vancouver and locally and uh, all mixed together who'll get a chance to to really carefully vet all of our submissions. We've got so far in our, in our second design challenge, we've got 50, we originally got 56 submissions, uh, 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 which has really shocked us in a really great way. And so the the jury has a big task to ahead of them to look at and uh, look at all the designs. And I'm sure they will, uh, they will bring all of their expertise and knowledge and, and care for our community to bear and, and select some winners that are that will present 
our community with some really interesting ideas about what housing might look like in our neighborhoods in the future. So what happens with the winners? At this stage, um, you know, our first design challenge was connected to um, uh, some accelerated approvals. Uh, we haven't made that commitment this time uh, because I think we are, we, we're heading into some interesting territory around design here. And we want to make sure that the outcomes that we see are the kind of quality that we, we want to make sure we're comfortable with and council is comfortable with. Um, so I think we'll have discussions about how we, uh, how we see these being delivered in neighborhoods, whether there's, whether there's an accelerated process or not. The, that conversation will for sure happen, but it's not guaranteed. So at this stage, we are still con considering it an ideas competition. It's something that will present residents and council and, and staff with some great ideas that we could integrate into, um, into many of our other processes. But the possibility for sure is out there that we, uh, that if all goes well, we love the submissions, we, we, uh, the community loves them, council loves them, that we could start finding ways to accelerate their approval and we could see them being built in our neighborhoods sooner rather than later. That possibility is out there. Well, I think the more important thing from my perspective is just to get the, you know, the ideas flowing and get them in front of the public and council to let people understand that there's a lot of variety that can happen within um, within our downtown neighborhoods uh, with the delivery of these projects. So with that, getting towards the end of our time, James, um, another question I'd like to ask, especially of planners, if you're standing on top of Knox Mountain 10 or 15 years from now, and for people who can't see, he's closing his eyes, so he's doing some good mind picture stuff going on here. I actually just fell asleep for a second. Okay, <laughs> sorry. It's... What do you see, you know, what, or what would you like to see? What does Kelowna look like, um, you know, for your young family? What, what is, a, oh, I was going to use the word utopian. I don't think we'll ever get to you, a, a utopian vision, but what's a good, sustainable, healthy vision for our city? I think, you know, when I think about what a, if I were to walk down a neighborhood street 15 years from now, what would I want to see? The first thing I want to see the first thing that always pops into my mind is I want to see people. You know, there's so many neighborhoods anymore where you, where you, when you arrive in them, the first thing you see is cars and you don't really see any people. And it might take you half an hour before you see somebody walking somewhere. And so I, I'm hopeful that, that when we start to see some of our neighborhoods evolve and change and, and accommodate more housing choices in them, that that will bring more activity. And we'll see more lively streets. We'll see kids running around and 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 biking on their bikes, and uh, you know neighbors talking and engaging with one another, people having barbecues in their in their yards. And uh, so I think the first thing I want to see is people, and I also want to see, um, I also want to see green. I want to see more trees. I want to see more, uh, you know, I want to see more shade coming from our from our. Our urban environment. I want to see more street trees that are that are growing in and that are making us feel like we're walking through mature neighborhoods. Um, I also think a little bit about what I don't want to see, and I don't want to. I don't want to walk through a neighborhood and see. Um, you know, I think in some ways the mark of successful infill is that you don't really see it that much. That it, it's not an observable, massive change in neighborhoods. It it just kind of happens, and the neighborhood slowly evolves, and it feels kind of seamless. So I, I, I hope that walking through a future neighborhood, you're not like, oh, this is an infill neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Look at all the infills here. 
I hope that you'd, you'd walk through that neighborhood and you'd see what a comfortable, great neighborhood to walk through. I see all these people out hanging out, being part of a community, and I feel I'm like I'm in a comfortable physical environment and I feel great walking around and less like, uh, oh, look at, look at all these different forms of housing here. I think that should be, that should drift into the background of a great neighborhood. Well, well said. And I think the, the ultimate test of success, as you say, is just walking through the neighborhood and feeling like it, it was meant to be here and it, and it uh, evolved organically. So best of luck with your team and this infill challenge. Um, I'm glad it's in your hands to steer this ship. And, and I fully expect and hope, let me, other way, fully hope, not necessarily expect that your vision will come to fruition because there's a lot of really good, smart people working on it, including you. So did we miss anything today, James, that you'd like to talk to us about uh, the Infill Challenge or other issues that are on your mind that you wanted to make sure we could, you could get across to our listeners? Um, you know, I, I just take another another chance to just reinforce that, you know, I, I think, um, you know, our neighborhoods are, are, are going to change one way or another, and I hope that we can all engage in a, in a really positive conversation about what that change ought to look like and how we can find room for, uh, for our teachers, our nurses, our, our average income earners, our, our working people in the future to be able to live in all of our neighborhoods because we love them, and I hope that we want people in the future of Kelowna to love them too. Well... We'll end on that. I think that uh, that's a, a noble goal, and I hope we'll reach that. So thank you for your time today, James. Thanks for the conversation. It was great. Yep. Excellent. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Kelowna Talks. For more conversations about topics that matter in your community, subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you liked what you heard, give us a five-star rating and share Kelowna Talks with your friends and neighbours. If you'd like more information about this podcast and other big community conversations, visit Kelowna.ca slash community stories. Mm-hmm.